I would actually put it as the most difficult behavior to change is what people eat, then how they exercise. And only then I would put like cigarettes and drugs and other things. I think it's actually harder to get people to change what they eat than it is to get them to stop doing drugs, believe it or not. It's a really hard behavior to change. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, Sarah founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview change makers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. HD Mall is a healthcare marketplace in Southeast Asia connecting patients to over 1,800 medical providers. This covers multiple categories such as dental, aesthetics, and elective surgeries. Over 300,000 patients have accessed more affordable healthcare via HD Mall. Get yourself a well-deserved health checkup. If you're in Thailand, go to hdmall.co.th. If you're in Indonesia, go to hdmall.id. Hey, dear. Really excited to have you on the show again. And what a time. Yeah, great to be back. Sinian Kuai Lo. <laughs> yes, it's Chinese New Year very soon as well. I mean, it's like a holiday season back to back, right? The joke is that work doesn't get started till March in Asia. Because That's right. That's right. Yeah. My, my in-laws are in town and we're showing them around Singapore again. They This is their fourth time, third time here, and they love it. So we're showing them all the things that have been uh, constructed since they were here last year. It's amazing how much Singapore has changed in the past year. This whole, have you been to Trifecta yet? Not yet. I clearly missed out on this. Oh yeah. Cause you've been in uh, the States for a while. They opened yeah. up this unbelievable surf park, skate park, and ski park right off of Orchard. I think it cost them over $5 million. I heard to build this thing. It's amazing to be able to surf on this gigantic wave right in the middle of Singapore. It's incredible. I got to try this out. Sounds perfect. My wife and I tried exploring skiing lessons, but it turns out you need to be at least three and a half. And what was interesting was that we were talking to a parent and what she was saying was that the struggle for kids is that, you know, you only ski during ski season, which is winter time. And so you only kind of like pattern where you have a burst of lessons during winter time. And then for the rest of it, you're not yeah. studying it. And so the kids kind of forget a lot of it. My wife was saying like, hey, having an indoor simulation where you kind of practice at least once a month feels like a natural yeah. learning routine. Yeah, the kids is one thing, right? When they get it down, they kind of learn it for life riding a bike. It's when you're an adult that you forget it very quickly. <laughs> I mean, I've taken so many lessons on snowboarding and it never sticks because I never do it for long enough. But so, but yeah. snow skiing, I learned as a kid and yeah. I never forgot it. But snowboarding, I don't, I don't know how many lessons I've taken and it still doesn't stick. But now I surf. I started going to the surf Ooh. lessons there and I love it, man. I'm, I'm there all the time. Wow. I mean, you know, between those three, between you said surfing, skiing, uh, snowboarding. Yeah. Well, so many things to learn. Sounds like I should pretty fun <laughs> like membership to do actually it's just like you know, get a break yeah it's oh, it's boy. not cheap but it's a lot cheaper than going to bali or australia or you know buying a boat or something <laughs> yeah exactly and then um i mean you can balance it out right yeah I, yeah I think one of the regrets i have is just like i never really got into the skiing and snowboarding game i, I think i also got mm. you know, something where I kind of experienced it as a kid, but not too much, like you said. And then as a doubt, when I finally got to ski, I just watched all my friends get injured because it's just like, every time there's a ski expedition, somebody yes. pops their knee. That's right. Just... Remember, 
everyone, exercise is very dangerous. That's why yeah. I don't exercise. No, I'm just kidding. I do exercise, <laughs> which is actually what you want to talk about today. You want to talk about health yeah. habits and yeah. how to keep fit, which is something that I've worked on for the past over a decade now in terms of changing people's behavior and behavioral design and how technology can help people change behavior. I've invested in several companies in the space. I know you've been following several companies in that area too. And it is, it's really difficult. <laughs> I would say it's probably, you know, I would actually put it as the most difficult behavior to change is what people eat. That's the most mm -hmm. difficult to change. Then how they exercise and only then I would put like cigarettes and drugs and other things. I think it's actually harder to get people to change what they eat than it is to get them to stop doing drugs, believe it or not. It's a really hard behavior to change. It's perfect because like you said, it's the new year, new year resolutions, exercise is right there at the top of it. It's something that I too am very interested and curious about. You mentioned that it was a personal journey for you in terms of your exercise discovery. Could you share a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I used to be clinically obese and today I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm going to turn 46 years old next month. And for the first time in my life, I have like a, not quite a six pack, but some definition in my abs. You actually saw, we met up before you went to New York at the exercise. I'm hesitating because I don't want to say the guy's name, but a very famous fitness influencer came yeah. to Singapore and kind of pissed me off. I have to say, I was kind of disappointed. I don't know if you remember what happened, but this famous celebrity exercise guru came to town and somebody emailed me and said, Hey, he's coming to town. If you want to exercise with him, give me 35 bucks and we'll exercise together with him. And so I said, okay, you know, he's, let's see what he knows. Let's see what he can do. And we show up and a bunch of people come. I guess he had put something about social media that he was coming to town and maybe like 50 people came and a few of us were ready to, to exercise. And then this guy gives a little talky poo. He says, you know, Hey, everybody, we can all live forever because of AI, blah, 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 throw in whatever keyword you'd like. And everybody claps hands. Hooray. Yay. We're going to live forever if we follow this guy's protocol. And then we start exercising and Mr. Fitness Guru starts just chatting up, just starts talking to everybody. And so I start sweating. I start putting in my time and exercising and he's not. And so what did I do? I ran over. You were right there. I think he was talking to you. And I pulled him in and I said, come on, we can talk. We have time after exercise to talk, right? That's the plan. We're like, we met up at the, at the beach club there. So there's you know, that we were all going to go get coffees and coconut water and chit chat afterwards. So I said, come on, join, come on, let's exercise. And yeah, he kind of giggled a little bit and then he slinked back to the crowd and he just kept talking the whole time. And I was super disappointed about this because I felt like it was a real betrayal of what we're supposed to be doing as fitness influencers, right? That the number one thing you can do is eat right and exercise. Top two things. Okay. Eat right and exercise. We all know this right? Mm -hmm. And yet the questions that people were asking this guy, what type of protein should I use? And what do you think about peptides? And what do you think about the right algae that I should use for my enemas? And all this crazy crap that is on the margins. It doesn't actually make you all that healthier. The ice baths, the olive oil, the this, the that. And it really, I think, encapsulates what drives me nuts about fitness influencers. And I think people should stop listening to all fitness influencers because they are making you fat. I'm going to say that again. Fitness influencers are making you fat because the more time we spend listening to these gurus who have very little qualifications, just like Mr. Fitness that we all, we both met, we spend less and less time on the stuff that really works. Eat right, exercise, sleep well, have friends. That's it. But we don't talk about that stuff because it hurts to exercise. I don't want to not eat unhealthy food, right? I don't want to do that stuff. Can't you just tell me the magic pill? Can't I just buy something? And the answer is no, you can't. You got to do some hard work. And so that's what really frustrates me. And I wish I, wish I knew how to crack that code on how to get people to stop focusing on the minor stuff and actually put in the effort to the stuff we know works. So I was there as well. 
uh, I did not pay 35 bucks. I was just told it was a meet and greet. So I had a totally different context from you going in. And I was told that this exercise was happening on the side. So that's an interesting entry uh, point. And I think for me, my perspective was, you know, as I shared with you later, it's like one part was just to have a conversation and then see the crowd. But uh, other part was just to, you know, kind of observe and hear out methods and practices and how he was approaching those questions, right? And I thought it was just a interesting dynamic, like you said, which is, I felt like there was like three layers. One was like the practices that he's espousing in terms of tactics or routines. And the second level that I felt was interesting was like, what's the tribe that you're in, right? You know, how do you self-identify to be part of that group that was there? And then the third cause is actually there's a philosophical dynamic, right? You know, this was a little bit more in the longevity space. And so there's an interesting philosophical dynamic about it, which is quite different from what you just mentioned, which is like, you know, have friends, get exercise. I mean, there's a, it's almost inverted in terms of like what the end outcome of that philosophy is, right? I, I thought it was fascinating. What, what do you mean? I, Wait, tell, me, tell me more. What's the philosophy? I think the philosophy that we had here, we had a statement, which was like, don't die. And then, you know, next day I was listening to a, a sermon about how to die with meaning, how to have a life with meaning. Right. I thought it was just an interesting, and obviously it's not mutually Exclusive. I think you can be healthier and have, choose to have, live a longer life and also choose to have a life with a deeper sense of meaning. I just thought it was an interesting right. and I mean, it was a controversial position that was staked yeah. out, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, 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 uh, he's very good at garnering attention. So the best way you can garner attention is to have some kind of variable reward, right? To have some kind of prompt that makes people think twice. Oh, what do you mean? Don't die. How is that possible? Right. And of course he knows we're all going to die, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> of course, maybe, you know, cause, cause putting on a t-shirt, right? Try and extend your life as long as possible. It takes up too much work. I guess, I guess my big beef was he had the opportunity to set the example and right. he didn't take it. He should have stood up and said, I love your questions. I can't wait to answer them. We'll have time after the workout, but let's not forget what matters, folks. Diet, exercise, sleep, and friends. Like he had that opportunity, but he didn't take it because he was too busy selling olive oil, which by the way, the hell does a billionaire need to sell olive oil? Does that not bother you? Like, isn't that sketchy? Like really? Olive oil? That's and by the way, the studies, I've looked into this, the studies of around olive oil, if you look at the effect size, it's puny. And we see this all the time, right? Like, oh, it's the ice bass. Oh, it's the this, it's the intermittent fasting, it, whatever the, the crap du jour, because people don't want to focus on those four things that really matters. And it drives me nuts. Like, why are we constantly looking for these easy solutions? If I hear about ice baths one more time, I'm going to lose my crap. Because like, really? Like, okay, yes. If you're LeBron James and you had a really tough game, Game. Okay, great. Ice baths are good for reducing inflammation. They're not going to help you shed that tire around your waist, for God's sakes. You got to eat right and exercise for that. But we don't want to hear that. <laughs> We'd rather spend our time in the sauna because it's easier or the ice bath because it, we feel like we did something because consistently exercising or consistently eating right is just too hard. We don't want to do it. And as a behavioral designer, this is fascinating, right? This is what I do for a living. But it's also really frustrating because you know, I see this all the time when it comes to distraction with my second book, Indistractable. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear from somebody who says, you know, I do these calls. I do these weekly office hours where somebody can call me. And as long as they've read my book, they can ask me anything they want. And I would say like probably like maybe one out of every 50 calls, I get somebody who says, hey, you know what? Your book didn't work. Oh, tell me more. I really want to hear, right? Like I spent five years writing this thing. What didn't work for you? Well, it, it, it didn't work. I read it, but it didn't work. I said, okay, great. Well, tell me what you did with step one, right? Master internal triggers. That's step one. What'd you do? How'd that work out for you? Oh, you know what, Nira? I forgot that step. I, I didn't do step one. Oh, okay. No problem. Tell me about what happened with step two. Make time for traction. That's step two. How, how'd that go for you? Oh, you know what? Actually, I didn't do that one either. Well, what'd you do? Well, I, I didn't do it. That's why it didn't work. Well, no crap. Yes, of course. And so are you surprised if you're smoking? Like, 
Who is still smoking in 2024? Can someone explain this to me? Honestly, if you are smoking in 2024, do you not know? Like here we are, my friend, I have, I literally have friends who only drink organic wine and organic fruit and meanwhile they smoke. Mm. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what is wrong with you, right? How could that possibly be? And yet this is the state we live in. Like how can you, you know, drink a beer on Saturday night and worry about ice baths on Sunday morning. Alcohol is a known carcinogen. It's a known carcinogen. Nobody says anymore that alcohol is good for you. We know alcohol causes cancer. We know it. There's no safe quantity of alcohol. None. Zero. And yet, okay, I'm going to spend all my time and resources not focused on cutting out the bad stuff. I'm going to add the junk science, the ice baths and the olive oil and the whatever chakras and who knows what. So explain that to me, Jeremy, please solve this for me. It's driving me crazy. Yeah, I think for us who are kind of really looking at the latest bound of research, I think those conclusions are a lot more clearer. It's just that for a lot of us, even myself, I would say the version of myself three years ago, you know, a lot of that stuff was not as clear. Now, what I mean by that is wine, resveratrol, grape skins. I mean, we're still dealing with the impacts of that yeah. research. And Brought the to you by the French that. Vineyard Association, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just hard to tell. I mean, seriously, like, yeah. you know, now, is this... now we know, right? Well, here's the, okay, here's the thing in Asia that gets me, okay? Asians, many of them, almost all of them, what is it, like 90%, get Asian flush, okay? Yeah. You don't need a laboratory to tell you that alcohol is not good for you. If every time no. you take a drink or two, you get flush. Your body yeah. is telling you, I can't process this poison you put into me. Mm -hmm. And yet we keep guzzling it down. Like, isn't that enough? You don't need the Surgeon General to tell you about this. Like, it's on your face, bro. Well, I mean, when you put it that way, I think it's a lot clearer now. And hopefully someone listening to this kind of like clicks a little more. It's just that, you know, you asked me three years ago, I've been like, oh yeah, a glass of wine is what you know, the science says. I know that's terrible for me to say that because that's not what the science says actually. But, you know, that's perception of what the science says. Is, right and right. you know it's just tough i mean another part is like processed foods right i mean you know you pull out this little wrapper and it just says organic it is all the different words buzzwords around there and he was like oh yeah and then you start processing and start reading the thing and he's like okay now there's a lot of words here that you know natural has no yeah well that you're right i think is an unfair competition when you right. hear a, a label when you see a label on a package that says organic cane sugar <laughs> or, 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 you know, organic dried cane juice, right? Oh, yeah. That's yeah, sugar. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that I think that should be out loud. That's that's not fair. That's clearly deception. And you see it far too often. Or like this peanut butter cup that has 35 grams of sugar, but it says organic on it. Ah. <laughs> and somehow that's gonna make it healthy. It's that's probably hot. an unfair fight. Yeah. I agree. I agree. But some yeah. stuff is so much more obvious, right? Like, should we have sympathy for people who smoke in this day and age? Who doesn't, you know, especially in Singapore, in the States, we don't do this, but in Singapore, you put those disgusting images of black lungs and people's neck with a huge cancer like putting out cancer juice all over the picture it's disgusting and you can't smoke a pack of cigarettes without seeing this disgusting imagery and still people smoke and i understand it's addictive right of course we know it's addictive it's not that addictive right yeah. lots of people have quit smoking many times and yet people continue at least though i have to say i have to give singapore a lot of props from a social engineering perspective one of my favorite things about singapore are the boxes the box of shame like how you make <laughs> smokers go into the box of shame they're all huddled together yeah. into this little box drawn on the floor and they all have to be really close to together smoking each other's <laughs> breath but still people still smoke i think singapore has one of the higher per capita smoking rates in the world surprisingly enough well i, I think tricky part is like you know nicotine is one hell of a drug <laughs> it's it's tasty it, it isn't it isn't you know it's funny the, the research shows that it's actually not as addictive as we thought but i don't know if you've seen some of this stuff but yeah it turns out nicotine is not as addictive as we thought what it turns out is it's much more about your perception of it being addictive than 
actually addictive. That right. the reason that people get addicted to a substance like nicotine is not the effects of the nicotine itself. It's funny, if you think about it, if you ask the average smoker, why do you smoke, right? They know it's bad for every smoker. If you ask them for more than five minutes, they all want to quit, right? I've never mm -hmm. met a smoker who says, oh, I would love if my child smoked. Mm -hmm. They all don't want their children to smoke because they know it's bad sure. for them. They know it's bad for them as well. But if you ask them, okay, well, why do you smoke? The number one reason is people will say, it relaxes me. That makes mm -hmm. no sense. Nicotine is a stimulant. Nicotine mm -hmm. is a stimulant. So smoking should not relax you. What smoking does is that it gives you relief from telling yourself not to smoke. So the way you get addicted to cigarettes is you buy a pack of cigarettes, you feel kind of guilty about it. You say, okay, I'll smoke one and that's it. I won't smoke again. And then you start thinking and ruminating about it. So, oh, I wish I could smoke again. Oh, I wonder what it's like. I wish I could do it. Oh, you start thinking. And it's that urge of, oh, come on, let me smoke already that I finally get to smoke. And of course, what do you do when you smoke? You take big breaths, right? And that's actually what people find relaxing. It's that pause of, oh, I don't have to tell myself no anymore. That's mm -hmm. what people find relaxing. There's a really great study where they took two groups of flight attendants and they both left from Tel Aviv and they both smoked. Both groups of flight attendants smoked and they put one group of smoking flight attendants on a flight that went from Tel Aviv all the way to New York, like an eight and a half hour mm. flight. Another group of flight attendants, they had a flight that went from, from Tel Aviv to London, okay, about half mm -hmm. the length. Now, they asked these flight attendants every 30 minutes to rate how much they wanted to smoke. Because of course, they couldn't smoke on the flight. If they smoked on the flight, they'd be fired or taken to jail, right? You can't smoke on a flight anymore. So you would think if it was all about the nicotine, right? This is what everybody says. Oh, nicotine is so addictive. That's why I can't stop smoking. You would think that as the body metabolized the nicotine, they would both desire another smoke in the same amount of time, right? Like three hours, four hours after their last cigarette, oh boy, they'd both really want a cigarette. But that's not what happened. What happened in the study was that while the group of flight attendants that was landing in London was reporting a very high craving, mm -hmm. when that's at that same exact point in time, when the group of flight attendants that was on their way to New York was over the Atlantic Ocean and they could not smoke, they reported very low craving. Why would that happen? Well, it turns out that both groups did not experience the same craving at the same time. They experienced high level of craving 30 minutes before the landing. Both groups. It didn't matter how much time had elapsed. It mattered how much time until your next smoke. Wow. Proving what I just said earlier, right? That it's all about, oh, come on, get off the plane already. Get off the plane. I want to smoke. I want to smoke. I want to smoke. I can smoke. As opposed to when they, when the flight attendants going to New York knew there was no option they could smoke after three hours. They still had four hours left in the flight. They didn't even think about it. It was not even an option. They know they'd get fired. They didn't report cravings. So this is a great example of how this story that nicotine is the reason we get so addicted is a little bit oversimplified. It's much more uh, about the way the mind plays these tricks on us. That's super fascinating because as you talked about it, you know, you reminded me of Buddhism. <laughs> the teaching is that not having something that causes the problem is you desiring something that is the real kick here. That's right. So I thought it was a, yeah. very Buddhist. Yeah. What, what's that saying? I don't remember if it's a Buddhist saying. I don't know who it's attributed to, but one of my favorite quotes, I should look this up, is that the wealthy man is not one who has everything, but the one who desires nothing. Beautiful. Very Buddhist philosophy there, right? That this perception of wealth, of wanting, that's the problem. It's that not you're truly wealthy when you want for nothing. Yeah. Now I was listening to this uh, podcast by Dr. K, which is this uh, psychologist. His point of view, it was a saying that in Hinduism, his claim was that, you know, a lot of the people who become ascended and achieve some level of nirvana were kings and princes. And the reason why was because as kings and princes, they always had everything. And so once they had everything and realized mm -hmm. they were still unhappy, as a result, they will had the natural next step to figure out why they're still unhappy, even though they had everything. Right. So that was an interesting uh, parable, at least. 
Very interesting. And, and a great lesson for us today, because for the average person, uh, live, certainly living in Singapore, and most people, the vast majority of people living in, in America or the rest of the industrialized world, we are living today better than the princes and kings of 200 200- years ago, we're certainly living better than them. Most of us don't have parasites. We have indoor plumbing. Uh, we have all kinds of things. We can go to the grocery store whenever we're hungry. We don't have famine. So yeah, our life is that type of existence that let alone things like talking, you know, I'm in Singapore, you're in New York, you know, having this magic screen that we can talk through or the fact that we can fly in the sky in a tube at almost the speed of sound. I mean, that, this would have blown their minds. And yet still we find ourselves oftentimes dissatisfied. And not because we don't have enough, but because of how comparison is that thief of joy, right? It's about mm. how the other guy has more. That's what keeps us wanting and craving and lusting and desiring. Whereas opposed to if we take a step back and, and think about how incredibly lucky we are to be born here and now, we should be dancing in the streets every day over how fortunate we are. But it's hard to put that in perspective. 100% agreed. So that makes me so curious. What do you think about New Year resolutions? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, I, I think they can be like everything. It's about how they're used. I think what we tend to do with New Year's resolutions is we visualize what we want and we make the resolution based on that. I want to have a beautiful beach body, so I have to get in shape for that. That's going to be my New Year's resolution. I want to buy a fancy car, so my resolution is going to be to make more money, or I want to have great relationships with my family, and so that's my New Year's resolution is to spend more time with my family, which is fine but dangerous because we know that visualizations have a downside, that when you spend time visualizing an outcome, your brain gives you the reward of feeling like you already have it a little bit. And so that becomes very dangerous. So this is why I'm not a big fan of like these, you know, they do this thing today, like visualization boards, or what do they call them? Like mood boards or manifestation boards, where you cut out like images of beautiful people and rich people and like you put it on a board because those things are supposed to manifest. That's bullshit. Don't do that. Turns out that the right way to manifest, the right way to visualize is not visualizing what you want. It's visualizing what will get in the way of what you want. This is super important. The best thing to do is don't visualize, oh, I can't wait to have a six pack and be on the beach and show off how fit and trim I am. The thing you need to visualize is what will I do when something gets in the way of the steps I need to take to accomplish that goal? Meaning, what do I do next time I'm at a party and somebody offers me a piece of chocolate cake when I'm trying to diet? That's what you should visualize. That's what you should make the plan about what am I going to do when something gets in my way? That's mm. the right way to do it. So just stopping at the dream, the outcome, without figuring out what's the input, what do I need to do to get that goal? Then, of course, that's why you fail. That's why the vast majority of people, what, what's National Quitting Day, like January 16th or something? There's actually a National Quitting Day because that's when most people abandon their New Year's resolution, like two weeks after New Year's, because they just wish for something, but then they don't put in their calendar when they're going to do that thing. And then they don't think about what's going to happen if something gets in the way of that goal. So make sure you do all three. So we're past January. And let's just say somebody has a new resolution. And like you said, most people will quit or not be making significant progress to it. Any advice on how to salvage or to resurrect or rejuvenate their trajectory that they want to be on? Sure. Yeah. So don't leave it. Oh, let me back up. So there's kind of two mentalities. And I think one is very wrong and one is very right. And one mentality is what I call the to-do list mentality. The to-do list mentality says, I'm going to put all my dreams and aspirations on a big long list and someday they're going to magically come to me. And anybody who's accomplished anything knows that's just not how it 
sense, okay? Like, that's just not how life works. What you have to do, and in fact, it, it actually drives you crazy because when you have this big long list of all these things you still haven't accomplished, all these dreams, mm -hmm. all these aspirations with no constraint, right? A to-do list has no constraint. You can always add more and more. So what happens every day you look at this list and here's all the things you still haven't accomplished, loser. And in fact, it makes you less likely to achieve your goals because every day you're looking at this list of things you still have not done. And that's why you hear people waking up in, in their 40s or 50s and saying, oh, what have I become? Now I have a midlife crisis because I thought I could do so much better in life. Well, it's because you just wrote down what you wanted. You didn't write down when you're going to get what you want. So the right way to do it is not a to-do list mentality. It's a time-boxed mentality. Time-boxing is when we turn those dreams into time. We turn our values into time. So using your count. So writing things down is great. Get it out of your brain, put it on a, in an app or on a piece of paper. Great. But that's step one, right? Step two is now putting it on your calendar. So if you say, I want to lose weight. Okay, great. When are you going to plan time in your day to cook healthy calorie restricted meals? When are you going to put time in your day to exercise, right? It's got to be in your calendar. If it's on your calendar, if it just stays in your to-do list. It's never going to happen. So that's a big part of how I would salvage these New Year's resolutions to figure out, okay, what is it you want? And where is that time on your calendar? If it's not on your calendar, you haven't really committed. It's just an aspiration, right? Good luck. It's not going to happen. Got to be in your schedule, whether that's have better relationship with your family, whether that's work on that business you've been planning, whether it's write that book you want to write, whether it's get in shape, whatever it is, it's got to have a defined place in your schedule. Yeah. And you know, the number one year resolution is exercise, like you said, on lose weight. Those two combined are like the vast majority of year resolutions. So are there any, I don't know, is a template or, you know, kind of slots or schedules or routines that you would recommend for this cluster of aspirations? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could give you some kind of magic solution and, and there isn't a magic solution. <laughs> Maybe, maybe the practicalities people aren't as aware of, but at the end of the day, I hate to tell you this folks, but if you want to lose weight, there's only one way. You have to restrict calories. Sorry. I mean, you know, okay, fine. Maybe there's, uh, you can take some kind of drugs if you're in a really bad situation. Uh, you know, we have Ozempic and all kinds of new fancy medication that cost a fortune. And when you get off those medication, guess what happens? All the weight comes right back. So there, you know, there, there's always a price for everything, but long-term weight loss only happens when we restrict calories. It's the only way. So what I, I'll tell you what I exactly do, right? So when I came back from America, when I was visiting for Thanksgiving in November, I put on about seven pounds because American food is very fattening and American cities are not walkable. So unlike Singapore, where I'm walking, you know, 15,000 steps per day easy. In the States, I probably got maybe four or five if I didn't go to the gym, which most days I didn't because we were with family. So I had about seven extra pounds when I came back to Singapore. So what did I do? I took out my app, right? It's right on my home screen. I can show it to you here. Here it is. It's called Carb Manager. And so what do I do? Every day I put in what I eat, like yeah. down to the calorie. And so that is the only way that I found for at least when I, in these periods of time when I need to, you know, get back to my, my, my range that I feel comfortable in, I got to track calories and I lose maybe about a pound a week. So about half a kilo or so a week. Don't go much faster than that because then it's not sustainable. But I literally track everything I, I eat. And if I'm not in a caloric deficit and the app will tell you, not everybody knows what their caloric deficit is. But the app will tell you, okay, here's what, you know, here's what stasis is. Here's what, if you want to stay your weight, here's how many calories you eat. And you want to be, you know, maybe 10, 15% below that, much more than that. And you'll lose weight too quickly and you'll gain it all back. It's as simple as that. It's through caloric restriction. Now, one of the hacks of caloric restriction is that you can exercise in order to eat more. So that's what I do. One of the things I love about living in Singapore is that it's an incredibly beautiful, walkable city. And so I just love walking. So I'll put in, you know, if I'm trying to lose a few pounds, I'll take my regular 15,000 steps and maybe I'll bump it up to 20 or 25,000 steps, uh, particularly on a weekend. I just love walking. And that's truly like 
for me, the purpose of exercise, like the purpose of exercise to me is not get big muscles. It's so I can eat more. Uh, and, and to put that in proportion, by the way, people don't realize how caloric food is, right? So about a mile yeah. of walking is about one apple. Right? So, <laughs> so you can't go crazy, right? And this is, by the way, why people who don't track their calories and then do some kind of big athletic event. I would say most people I know who have run a marathon end up heavier after the marathon because exercise makes you hungry. Your body's not stupid. If you start expending more calories, your body will release more ghrelin, the hunger hormone that will tell you, hey, we're spending more calories. You need to eat more. But people think, oh, well, you know, I exercised this morning. I ran whatever, 10K this morning. I deserve to eat. This is called moral licensing. It's when you're good in one area, it's like squeezing on a balloon, right? You try and squeeze one end of the balloon. What does it do? It pops out the other end, right? So look, I was so good in my exercise. So that means I can eat a lot. And because they're not tracking their calories, they don't just eat a little bit more. They eat a lot more. And so they, they add, you know, two, three, 400 calories every day. Well, you know, 3,500 calories is one pound. And so they end up tacking those pounds. And that really is, if you want to get skinny or you want to get fat, the formula is not do something for a week or two. The, the reason people my age look at their bodies and say, oh my God, how did this happen? It's not because they gained 20, 30, 40 kilos overnight. It's because every month, they would gain one kilo. Anybody can gain one kilo in a month. That's easy. That's like you have one extra kaya toast or one too many copies. That's easily 100 calories per day. And that ends up being a kilo or so per, per month. Easy peasy. So what happens? Okay, well, that's 12 extra kilos a year. And then over a decade, right? Like that starts piling up. And then you look back and say, oh my gosh, how did this happen? And that's the same way with losing weight. It's a slow, gradual process. So the problem isn't that people don't know how to lose weight and be fit. It's that it just takes so darn long. And so that's mm -hmm. the mantra that I keep repeating to myself when I want to quit, when I just want to give in to something. The mantra I keep repeating to myself is consistency over intensity. Consistency mm -hmm. over intensity. You, you talked about New Year's resolutions earlier. New Year's resolutions, what happens when you make a New Year's resolution? Most people, January 2nd, they're in the gym, they're sweating like crazy, pedaling as fast as they can, running on that treadmill as quickly as they can. That's intensity. That gets you nowhere, right? What gets you somewhere is consistency. It's showing up not only January 2nd, but also January 3rd and 4th and 5th and all the way through the year, consistently doing that little bit of work. That's what gets you where you want to go. What's interesting is that I've noticed for myself that I had to go through as I aged, like you, two things, right? One was discovering an exercise that I enjoy. And two was accommodating the fact that I was starting to get injuries, right? And last year was the first time I was mm -hmm. training up for my military service. And for the first time in my life, I got my ankle twice, same for my neck while exercising. So how would you think about mm. maybe perhaps the first, which is how do you discover an exercise that you enjoy because I know that's something that you've been experimenting and, and trying as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's a, these are both really, really good points because again, if the mantra we should follow is consistency over intensity, number one, remember we say abs are made in the kitchen. That's something everybody in the fitness community knows. Abs are made in the kitchen, not in the weight room, not in the mm. gym, right? Like abs are made in the kitchen. So if you want to lose weight, it's very hard to exercise yourself skinny. So number one has to be diet. But if you yeah. are using exercise to perhaps supplement a, a healthy diet, then you're absolutely right. Like the first priority should be you have to do it safely. So there's many sports that look super fun that I used to enjoy that I, I just I don't do anymore. Like I, I, I can't play tennis. I won't play basketball, really. Like it's just for a 46 year old 
guy like me, it's just too risky. Because like a perfect example, my daughter's super into trampolining and, and trampolining is great, right? Like it's a wonderful sport and it gets your heart rate up for kids. <laughs> I fell one time in the wrong direction and my ankle twisted over and it turned blue and I couldn't run. I couldn't do any exercise. I could hardly walk for like eight weeks. It was horrible. And so that's really hard to get back on track. And so I don't want that to happen again. So I'm very selective about what kind of exercises I do. So what do I do? So strength training, if you do strength training, you know, with standard gym type equipment, dumbbells, kettlebells, pretty hard to hurt yourself, you know, as long as you're a little bit warmed up, that type of stuff can be done very safely. I'll give a little plug. I'm not affiliated with them in any way, but a place that I love is Sparked. Mm. Have you been to Sparked? You've invited me once and it's yeah. far away from my home. So I just work out at home at my Yeah, they only have one facility. But I'll give them a quick shout out. So they do cognitive fitness. It's really cool. So what they've done, they've done, they have all this really high-tech equipment that you're playing like these 45-second games while you're exercising. So they'll have like a math problem that you have to solve on this LED board and you have to hit the answer while you're stepping on a Reebok step. Or mm. you have to, they have this, board, they call it a surfboard. It's like this platform that's moving while you're doing a hollow hold or while you're doing a, a plank, or they'll ask you capitals of countries as you're like throwing a ball against a target. So it's like all these brain games that develop not only cardiovascular and muscular fitness, but also balance, agility, peripheral vision. So you're doing much. And, and most importantly, it just goes by quickly. Like it goes by much faster than, okay, I'm going to slog out a, a 10K run. So I, I really enjoy that. That's been really fun. And then as I mentioned, I took up surfing recently. It's crazy how many calories surfing burns. It's actually burns more calories for me per hour, even though I'm waiting for other people to take their turns. I can actually burn more calories per hour surfing than running believe it or not, because it really gets your heart rate up there. But the most important thing, it's not what you do, it's that you do it consistently and safely. So you're absolutely right. And you know, what's interesting is that I've noticed for myself that it was kind of like this trial and error dynamic, right? And I felt quite defeated sometimes, but I was reading this interesting quote. It's not a circular, it's a spiral, right? It's just testing different formats of what works, what doesn't work. For you historically, what was stuff that didn't work for you? I mean, you mentioned trampolining something that didn't work for you. Mm. It's part of your experimentation. What were some experiments that didn't work for you in terms of sport? Or nutrition. This is a personal perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely things that I don't do anymore, but I wouldn't say they didn't work for me. I would say they worked for me for a while and then I kind of mm. lost interest. So swimming is fantastic, super low impact, but super boring. I, just <laughs> didn't, I swam for a while. I swam for probably a year. And it was really effective. I mean, you burn a ton of calories in the pool, but I didn't like it. At the point, I just got super, super boring. So now I, I, what I have stuck with for the past, I, I think about 12, 13 years now is running. And this is kind of weird, but I love to run barefoot. So you'll see me every once in a while running by the marina. I run completely barefoot, which is very strange, but is the only way I've ever run where I don't get injuries. So I used oh. to run with shoes and I was a heel striker. So every time mm. I would hit the ground, my heel would bang on the ground, which many people do. Not everyone but many people do when they put on uh, thick soled shoes. And so what, if you think about it ergonomically, what that means is you're kind of like pounding your knees every time you hit the pavement. And so I would get knee injuries. I would get shin splints. It was just very painful. And so I gave it up for a long time. And then I read this wonderful book. I think it's the author's name is McDougal. Chris McDougal, I think it is. It's called Born to Run. And it's basically mm -hmm. about the history of running and how actually, even though today people, you know, say you run barefoot, people think that's crazy. You run barefoot. Well, you know, athletic running shoes are like maybe 60, 70 years old. Like it's still to yeah. this day, some of the best runners in the world run barefoot. That's yeah. how they learn to run, right? Because that's how the human body evolved, right? We evolved to be persistence hunters. We are evolved to be a species whose competitive advantage as hunting, right? People think that ancient people used to hunt with bows and arrows. Well, not really the way you think. We didn't, we didn't have a bow and arrow from like, 
you know, a, a hundred yards away, bows and arrows are effective if you're pretty darn close, right? Like maybe 20, 30 yards away, that's when you can make a kill. So you have to get pretty close to an animal in order to kill it. Well, how do we do that? We would run after them until exhaustion, until that animal died. Because, you know, we are the only primates who don't have hair, right? Mm. I'm, I'm going way down a rabbit hole. Tell me to stop here anytime. But if this is interesting- <laughs> Keep going, I love it. There we go. <laughs> Keep going, okay. One of the central mysteries that anthropologists have tried to ask is why don't we have hair? You ever wonder that? We only have hair on our heads and then we have a little bit of hair here, mm. like, like in weird places in our bodies. Why? Like chimpanzees are hairy, gorillas are hairy. Why are we the only primate that is hairless, essentially? And the reason why is because our competitive advantage as uh, uh, bipeds, right? The fact that we don't walk on all fours, we walk on, on two legs, is that we can outrun any animal on earth. Did you know that? That humans can outrun any animal. Not with speed. We suck at speed. We're very slow, but we can run longer sustainably than any other animal on earth. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Right? We don't amazing. have, we don't have sharp claws. We don't have great, you know, sharp teeth, but we can outrun animals. So what we would do as a species is, you know, unlike a lion who, when a lion hunts, they look for the weak, they look for the young because lions are very fast. So they want the slower animal to eat up. That's not what ancient humans did. Ancient humans would look for the biggest, baddest buck right? They look for the kudu or the antelope that had the biggest horns, the biggest male, because they're the mm -hmm. slowest, right? They And right. so so they, oh, sorry, not the slowest. They are the ones that give up first. So what would they do? Yeah. And you could actually still, there are still tribes of people in Africa who do this to this day. The tribe will pick off that big, bad male kudu or antelope with the huge horns that are very heavy. And they mm -hmm. just start running after them, just at a slow pace, you know, just consistently running, separate them from the pack and just run after them, just chugging, running after that animal. Now, after a few hours, right? What, what starts happening? The antelope runs for a while, gets exhausted because they're covered in fur. They start to overheat. And all the only way they can cool down is through panting. And so they have to stop for a while. And then the humans catch up to them. And then they get scared. They start running again. And so it turns out for about the length of a marathon, you can kill a, 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 an antelope or a kudu just through exhaustion. They just fall down and basically die. And then you use a bow and arrow to, to pierce them and bleed them to death. And then you've got your prey. This is how the human species evolved. So long story short, we evolved to run and we evolved to run barefoot. And so, I don't know, I, that story really inspires me because I feel like I'm connected to some like 200,000 year story of how our species used to hunt back in the day. So I don't know. I just thought that'd be interesting because I thought it was fascinating. Sorry. No, no, that's a cool story. You know, actually it ties up quite nicely to also what you shared about, you know, habits and year resolutions, which is about running consistently over a long period of time and use that asset and actually pick out the biggest, baddest, which could be a year resolution yeah. for you. <laughs> On that note, I'd love to summarize the three big uh, takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing very much about, I'll say, new year resolutions and salvaging them. I thought it was a beautiful we are talking about the fact that, yeah, there is an understandable percentage of people who are quitting and that comes because of flawed methodology and approaches and also kind of like the ecosystem of advice out there is kind of like warped out there. And so I think you gave some really good advice about how to go about being thoughtful about how to rebuild the routines and the structures that gives you the consistency to rejuvenate new year aspirations that you had. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing about health and weight loss and exercise. I thought that was a wonderful industry view actually about what's clear clear, what's not clear. And like you said, there's a lot of incentives to make it less clear over time. And I think we gave some examples of meal bars, candy, drugs, and different aspects to talk about trade-offs and how people should really focus on, like you said, to focus on big ones, which is nutrition, exercise, and have friends. So I thought it was a wonderful set of conversations there. And last one, being so personal about it. So I thought it was great to hear about <laughs> sure. your personal journey, about what you tried, you know, from being clinically obese to being a fit 46-year-old. I actually enjoyed 
enjoy hearing about what you love, which is like surfing as well as running barefoot. And also I thought also hear about things that didn't work out for you, which was swimming, which was boring and never approach a trampoline ever again, because those, <laughs> <Never> are, again. <laughs> I learned my lesson. <laughs> those are pits yeah. for the ankles, you know, uh, and I've got to injure that trampoline as well, actually. On that note, thank you so much, Nier, for sharing your experience. My pleasure. Great to see you again. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.